0: and Welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a podcast for SaaS marketers and product people. Our awesome guest today is Tim Schumacher, co-founder and CEO of SaaS Group, and we're going to talk about the portfolio model today. This show is brought to you by UserList, an ML automation platform for SaaS companies. Board, engage, and nurture your customers, as well as marketing leads. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at useless.com slash worksheets. Hey, Tim.
1: Hey, Jane. Thanks for having me.
0: We're so excited to have the original founder of, of the famous SAS group here and can't wait to learn more about your model
1: yeah happy to tell you more about the model not sure if we're famous yet we're working on it but we're also still a startup in a certain way
0: before we dive into that tell us more where you come from are you a marketer by trade are you an engineer by trade what's your story
1: I'm kind of in between. So I think for the marketers, I'm this nerdy guy. For the real developers, I'm the business guy. So it always depends on the perspective. But no, joking aside, as a teenager, I was a developer. So I got my first computer when I was like 13 or 14 and started games, but also very soon then coding and coded my way with websites, with games, with all sorts of things uh, through university. But then I I studied business and I moved more and more on the on the business side. And so I coded for about 10 years, but I stopped coding in my mid-20s. And now uh, definitely there are a lot better coders than I am.
0: Between then and these days, there is another big success story of uh, Cedo, the company you used to run. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, so I started right out of university. I started a company called Cito.com, a domain marketplace Cedo stands for search engine for domain offers. So we essentially built the biggest marketplace in the world for domains. And the idea was very simple. And I guess a lot of founders also ran into this problem. You know, you you have a a great name, you want to start a company, and then it's like, oh shit, domain is taken. And with Cedo, we always we wanted to make it as easy to acquire a domain as it is to register a new one. Because as you know, majority of names is not used, but there's no functioning marketplace. And so I. I spent about 10 years, my very first story, to build this company, build it to about 100 million in revenue, 300 people took it public at some point. But then, yeah, after over, over 10 years, exited the company and went off to, to do new things.
0: And then instead of starting a new one, you decided to use these funds from the exit to buy other companies. What was the philosophy behind this uh, inception story of SaaS Group?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So SaaS Group, I started because I like to get my hands dirty in building companies. I dabbled with angel investments for a few years as well. I did some great angel investments, but I figured, hey, I like to be a founder. I like to make decisions on product, on technology, on marketing, on everything. And I like to move things forward opposed to just giving people money and hope for the best, even if there were some great outcomes, but it's something different. And I think like it's one of those things where people reflect this over the course of the career. I reflected for myself that I'm also not a zero to one person. I'm not that person who sits for a year or two in the basement and dabbles with a first version of the product to get initial product market fit. And there are people who are much better than me than with this. I'm more of a scale person. I'm more of a one to 10 person instead of a zero to one person. Uh, it's a very different skill set. And at the same time, I figured, hey, there are a lot of founders out there who are really good in zero to one. So they bring a SaaS company to a million, two million, three million, sometimes more in revenue, but then they either struggle with it or they just don't like it anymore. They want to go back to building something because at some point those things feel like routine. Or there are lots of other reasons why founders want to do something else at some point. Sometimes they're also more unfortunate ones. They get into a fight with their co founder, they burn out. Or they just want to spend more time with something else, complete career change, spend more time with the family, multiple reasons. And I figured, hey, you know, there's no really no exit markets for those small SaaS companies and putting one on one together kind of what I'm good at with what there is a market need. I figured like, hey, maybe I start buying those SaaS products and taking it to the next level. And that's how I started SaaS Group about six years ago.
0: Right now you have about 16 companies under your belt. How does the distribution look like on the timeline between you started and did you buy many of them at once and learn something and then gradually get more?
1: I actually started very slow. So in a certain way, also, I took my time to find product market fit for this. I bought one startup in the first year. I bought another one in the second year. I bought a third one in the third year and then two in year number four. And then also is when we started actually hiring a professional M&A team. And so so also a lot of credit goes to both both our head of M and A Pavel and and our head of origination Dirk, who then helped really amplify my early efforts. And last year, for example, we've acquired seven companies, seven projects.
0: So it's more like a hockey stick situation where you are ramping up.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's more of a hockey stick. We're ramping up, and it was the same thing with product market fit. We had to find kind of what do we have to offer to a founder. How do we also take a company once we've acquired it? Because one thing is acquiring it, but the other thing is actually working with it. So we built some central teams for that. And um, so figuring out this entire model uh, definitely took time. I could never have absorbed seven companies in the first year that I would have collapsed.
0: Were there any expectations that were not met? Like, What did you think about this model when you started building the portfolio versus what you think about this now?
1: Well, that's a great question. So there are always surprises because sometimes, so of course, every single project we buy, we think that we can work with it and we can grow it and we can do some things better than the original founder while preserving what made the product strong in the first place. And sometimes our hypotheses are spot on and sometimes they are just terribly wrong and the market goes into a very different direction. The thing is, you never know. Sometimes we have projects where we, thought they're going to be hard, but they're much easier. And the other way around, every business is a surprise on its own.
0: But when it comes to the portfolio itself, are there any things like extra overhead or just like overwhelm of owning multiple businesses that you didn't anticipate?
1: Yeah, so we started then about two years ago, we started up building central teams for exactly that because we we figured, hey, one thing is is buying them, but in order to own them and to run them, there is a lot of operative tasks. It starts with administrative things, HR, finance, BI, all those things, they just need to run and they need to run properly. And they're also the ones which we run absolutely always centrally. Like finance is a great example is like hey the numbers need to be working and they need to be in the books a few days after the month's closed same with hr salaries need to be paid things need to be compliant taxes need to be paid all of those sorts of things like you don't have a lot of room for error but then we have a lot of other teams where we let the actual brands a lot of freedom that's the product technology its marketing to a certain extent and some of things which are really more product specific And there also, it's important to try out new things, to um, make errors and to experiment with things because every project is is a little different there.
0: What is the difference between the model that you have built versus the funds that would aim to buy companies, grow them and and sell them? Uh, I know there is a bit of the answer in the question. What's the difference in yours?
1: Yeah so uh, we don't sell the company that's <laughs> that's indeed the the big difference we are not a fund a fund like most vc funds they buy or also private equity funds they buy a company in order to then sell it after usually 3 4 to 10 years 10 years would be more for a vc 3 4 years would be with a private equity company but the intention is always to sell and that's a very different view because in our case we want to keep the product essentially for eternity, and sure, it's never guaranteed, and things change, and there are mergers and things. But overall, our intention is always to hold it forever, to preserve the brand, preserve also the legacy of the founder by preserving the name and everything. But then, just continuously improve it in a very sustainable way. Also, we're not swinging for the unicorn exits like VCs, because there's one. I think there's one fun thing where where the business where business. In, in founding is fundamentally broken is like, you know, you open TechCrunch or you open Forbes and you see all those stories, oh, founder raised hundred million, all those exits, all those, this is kind of what the press is fascinated with. But very often the founders don't see a dime because the investors have liquidation preferences. A lot of the companies that have gotten big fundings, they, at some point they don't go anywhere and On the contrary, there is this world of bootstrap founders who work very hard, generate revenues from often day one, uh, sometimes through consulting, but sometimes through early versions of the product. But they, in most cases, own 100% of the company and they quietly build the company without ever any glorious headline being written uh, about them. But they also, they really own their success and not like with the VCs, where the VCs have like 100 portfolio companies and they're totally fine if, if a big majority of them doesn't go anywhere. The founder really has all the eggs in one basket. And, and that's, the, that's the philosophy we're really aiming for and the philosophy we also respect quite a lot and the founders we most most cases uh, then acquire.
0: How do you know that a company is a good fit to join SaaS Group?
1: So like any portfolio company and there are a few out there who have different flavors we have a certain niche and in our case one thinks this niche is defined by first of all size so we look for companies usually between 1 and 10 million in revenue why 1 to 10 million for one reason if it's smaller then it's usually not worth our effort and we rather wait a little bit more and pay a little bit more so if it's smaller than a million if it's more than 10 usually it gets prohibitively expensive because then there are a lot of private equity companies who want to get those bigger chunks. But 1 to 10 is really an area where there's there's a lot of supply and we can also be a really good fit in the value we bring. That's one area. Size and second thing is really a topic. We look for product-led growth, so not pure enterprise sales, sales-led growth, but for product-led growth. And we look for SaaS businesses in development tools, online marketing tools, productivity tools. So basically anything a modern SaaS company runs on. And so those things together, and then there are, of course, a lot of other criteria as well we we look at. But those, I would say, are probably the two most important things as the initial filter.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. You're not doing any effort to try and unify the branding or change the names or like shoehorn them into a single portfolio that is like styled similarly they all run completely separately
1: yes they all run separately we have the administrative side so finance HR, BI. that's run fairly centrally to have control and then for everything else we have what we call a paved road so we have the the philosophy there is that that there are some tools where we believe they're best in class so user list for example is on that list of best in class tools we're saying hey you know, you're free to choose, but hey, this would be one of the tools we really recommend. And if you want to go on the gravel road with some dodgy tool, yeah, you can do that. But it's like it's your at your own risk. You don't get much support and everything. And and generally, we w- would say to a brand is, hey, use 80% of the tools, use paved road. And 20% is more experimentation because always it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a fine line between freedom on the one side. Everybody wants some freedom, but also... Yeah, if something true and tested, just use that. Just don't bother with anything which you, you know, you don't have a competitive advantage if you if you use like some some really crappy tool just because you're using something different. And there's this tendency sometimes, this kind of not invented here syndrome in every startup. Very often people want to just use something because it's new and cool. And yeah, you should do that in 20% of the times, like with cutting edge things and trying new things. But a good chunk of things should just run on true and tested things where we can also then put best practices across the company so for example our marketing teams they really know a lot of those tools really well and then they can apply best practices across the brands but the brands still should have their freedom and that's a con- that's a constant kind of uh, calibration uh, between those two uh, poles
0: you've been mentioning the word freedom a few times so uh, how free are the founders after they join is it typical that they stay And free to exercise their own vision of, you know, the trajectory for the company? Or do you take over the control and they just help operate?
1: So we have both. We always start with the question is, what do you want as a founder? Because that's really important. Like, what what do you want with your life? Because at the end of the day, selling a company is always motivated by some desire in your life. It can be just to cash out. It's very legitimate. It can be by external factors sometimes it's it's sickness, it's family issues it's a fight with a co-founder it can be a burnout we've seen everything it can be by the motivated by the feeling that you need help because you go got so far but you're not going to get further and so we start with that question we start with is like why are you selling and really getting to the gist sure there's always the the explanation of the broker and that's usually very. It's very self-serving, that question. The broker would always say, hey, because they wanted to have a new endeavor or something because they don't want to appear weak. But we always want to get to the gist of why does a founder really want to sell to understand his or her motivation? Because that's the only way how we can then, to answer your question, finally craft something where... We can make it fitting. So some founders leave, exact, like literally weeks after they have sold to us, and other founders stay for years. We've had everything in between, and of course, it like it, it has an effect on price. It has an effect on the deal structure and everything. But we want to make things work either way, and that also then, of course, has an aspect on freedom. If there's a founder who says, "Hey, just give me a goal, and I'm gonna peg my." Burn out to a certain goal, but leave me freedom to reach those goals. That's a very different story than if we would hire someone into a brand with very specific things and more guidance because it might be a a new CEO. It really depends.
0: I interviewed JD Grapham from our community who runs a similar portfolio of, well, it's probably not similar at heart, but a a similar model. And uh, one of my favorite things i learned was what's his typical plan of action when they acquire a new company and their typical plan of action was to research the uh, community around this find one little feature that has been long asked for build that one little nice feature showing that like we're here to improve and then they just lay low for a year and and observe and and study and you know see how things work out in your case would that be similar Or do you have your own like signature ways of dealing with new companies?
1: I like this. What you mentioned from JD, I have to to go back to this five-year-old podcast of yours with him and and, and listen to it. I like this a lot because definitely as an acquirer, you want to show your genuine good intentions. And I think that's what uh, they're doing with this. Uh, So I like this idea. What I think we do in a similar fashion is we like to do a very thorough DD so due diligence, so to, to look very closely, involve the community, involve a lot of stakeholders and really build a hypothesis. So listen to what should be changed. And sometimes it's very little that needs to be changed. Sometimes it's really, okay, we acquire a company and we let it basically run in a very similar way. And other times we have a very strong hypothesis on what we change, but that can be very different. So it doesn't always have to be this one feature. And I'll, I'll make this more practical by, by giving you An example or two so for example we acquired a company called pre-render three years ago pre-render is a great software to pre-render javascript pages to make them more accessible for the google bot and increase your rankings uh, for javascript heavy sites and the project uh, was great was run by an excellent developer one of the smartest developer we've we've ever worked with. It just had one kind of little flaw. I would say it made two million in revenue, which is amazing for one guy. But he out of the two million, he paid one million to AWS every year. So half of his so half of his revenue went out the door through AWS. Our main hypothesis when we acquired was, was AWS is the wrong partner for this. By the way, it is actually for for a lot of projects. I think cloud is very very expensive, and so we just basically we bought three hundred bare metal servers and. Put it on that, hired a sysadmin, and now instead of a million, it's 200,000. So we cut the costs by 80%. So our initial hypothesis was doing exactly that. So it was not, it was something the customers didn't even notice. It was a two month, three month migration project. That was our main hypothesis. And and we basically, okay, first we cut the costs, then we take this money, we invest it into a better product, better. Customer service, better website, uh, did a lot of improvement on the surface. Again, the technology brilliant, but a lot of like little marketing improvements on the surface. And now it's a great business. It's grown many, many times since then in, in the last three years, but it started with this very clear hypothesis, which was actually under the surface, so not even visible to clients. And in that way, I agree with JD is you need to have one clear hypothesis on what you change. What usually doesn't work is if we go in and like, hey, we can make everything a little better. That usually doesn't work because we can't. We're also not, not rocket science. We're not the smartest people in the, on the planet. So unless we really understand one thing or a few things we change and make it very specific, we usually just don't change anything materially. And But that can be very different. In other cases, it's actually cost. So we see a lot of uh, startups, which also over time get bloated. So they might have 20 people why they would only need 10. Um, and so then it's a good, good way to reset the company with the best 10 people. And then interestingly, the best 10 people are more productive than 20 people, which include 10 mediocre people. Um, and that might sound brutal, but sometimes it's actually a really important reset in the life of the company. And it's one which is very hard to make for the founder because he or she has employed all those people, has personal relationships. and knows that, hey, I should actually run this with half of the people, but just can't. And so in some cases, uh, that is the main hypothesis. It's just, hey, let's make this lean again. And we've been doing that as well.
0: Now you have the authority to play the bad cop.
1: Exactly. You you have the authority to play the bad cop. And sometimes you need this. Now, of course, not with a uh, startup where there's one guy, you can't cut him in half. Um, There, It's about building up. So sometimes you need to build up people and sometimes you need to scale down people but it's, know, in, in, every time it's important to have the hypothesis, what is best for the business to position it in the long run.
0: That was so valuable that you brought up those examples of, you know, scaling the infrastructure in the optimal way or, you know, optimizing costs on the human front. What are some other examples that have caused substantial shift in in the trajectory?
1: Yeah. So onboarding is one to also stay a bit in, in your topic, onboarding and a proper communication with clients. That's usually an underlooked topic is we've found a lot of projects where basically you can sign up, but after you sign up as a client, you're left alone. So one of the first things we always look is, is what is the onboarding flow? And can we buy a, a proper communication sequence of events? proper customer segmentation with proper communication we can improve conversion from uh, not not just from visitor to sign up but also from sign up uh, to paid um and that is there's always potential for improvement uh, in this area
0: i cannot not ask a question as a designer by trade have there been occasions where you would be like, "Oh, this is great software, but the marketing website is is bad and yeah. poorly designed"? All, all did the that time. change? Did that? Well, of course, because yeah. that's nature. You never have a polished website as a bootstrap company. But did that change like the sales trajectory?
1: Yes, absolutely. The the aforementioned case with Prerender, Prerender very much came from an open source background, doing a lot of links to open source websites, but it failed to have a design. For made for conversion, and so one of the first changes we made after we had the the project with the bare metal servers was to have a website optimized for conversion and a design that is actually also appealing to more professional companies. And I think it increased, it doubled, it doubled signups overnight. That's an extreme case, and it shows kind of uh, how much potential for improvement there was. But there's always some sort of improvement
0: in the area of customer service and and support slash customer success. Has that part been fundamental for change, or is it just more like a set of general housekeeping?
1: It's always a possibility to for improvements there. Big, it, it differentiates is differentiated a lot by brands. I mean, we have some brands that have excellent service and they pride themselves of service, and there's nothing we can improve. Like Pipeline CRM, for example, it's a it's a CRM in a very in a very CRM is obviously a very competitive space, but one of their USPs is just Excellent US-based service, not outsourced, super fast. So there was nothing we can improve. Actually, what we did is we made the head of customer service, the head of customer service for all of Has Group, so that she can improve, take some of those processes to the entire group. But then, yes, we have some brands where it's basically it's the founder, with some lackluster results and also not a lot of passion doing customer service on the side. And that is very hard. Uh, We've had some founders who could never take a day of vacation because he was the only customer service person. We had crazy cases. And then, of course, it helps a lot if we can differentiate between first level support, which is then done by the central team, uh, is done twenty four seven because we also have uh, people in the Philippines, we have people in Europe, we have people in the U.S., We can use AI for for first level support, and then of course, second level support always needs to be within the brand, uh, close to the engineers and to people who really know the product really well. But by structuring support, um, also structuring then customer success is an uh, adjacent function uh, that is always something where we can we can make some improvements. Yes,
0: one of the biggest advantages, but also disadvantages of bootstrapped businesses is that a lot of expertise and unique talent is locked into the founder yes. or the founding team. And of course, as the business owner, you'd love to de-risk this, even if the founder stays. Right. What's your uh, course of action there?
1: Well, we usually look for what are the people in the founding team that could take over if the founder leaves. If the founders don't leave, then we don't have that problem, at least not for the time of the earnout, whether that's one, two or three years, but it's kind of kicking the can down the road. But otherwise, we, we usually look for the talent. And some founders, and it's generally an advice for founders who want to exit, is think about those things and build people up already if you know that you're going to exit. Because it will make your target more attractive for the acquirer and also will make it easier for you to leave at some point if you know that you've built someone up. And sometimes that has very positive results. So we have some brands to name Zeobility or Rewardful, for example, where the founders have been great in building up a second level of management. And now those people are the CEOs of those companies and they're doing fantastic jobs. So very often it works. If people, if founders don't do that, then yes, a brand can really struggle because there is no successor. And then we need to step in and, and hire someone. And sometimes that works too. And we've made some great hires, but also there were cases where we struggled in in hiring the right successor to a company which wasn't set up for success.
0: I'd love to talk about sales specifically. I know you prefer the product-led model where it's less sales, more automated funnel. But uh, do you do anything on the sales front, sales motion at all?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we try to stay away from sales as long as we can, but we figured that With a lot of enterprise products, you just need first customer success. And then at some point you need inbound sales. And then maybe, yes, at some point also outbound sales. And so with the more enterprise heavy products, we are slowly building up internal sales functions as well in the respective brands. And it's working actually (laughs) as much as product as we hate it as product led people. It is actually working. And it's, I mean, it's a testament to the people working in this place, but it's, I think it's just important to not do it the other way around. I think what's not a good advice is for founders who might not have product market fit to start off with sales, because then you basically, you're pushing products to people who might not want it in the first place. But if you do it the other way around, you have a product that is really strong, even without salespeople talking you into that. Then if you add the salespeople at a later stage, when you have a few million in AR, then they can just fuel the fire. Um, just not doing it the other way around. That would be my general advice to to SaaS founders here.
0: We've talked about different ways of improving that you have in mind, but just in general, as a person, you're kind of above and have an objective view of bootstrapped companies in general. Like, what's the general characteristic? What are the strong points? What are the typical weak points? Uh, Just overall, what's the climate there in the industry?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like bootstrap founders. I, I I kind of have been a bootstrap founder myself. CEDO was pretty much, we, we got a little bit of investment, but I think it was like 200,000, which we touched at a time when there was no founding available. Then the, the next company, I, I did start a company actually in between CEDO and a SaaS group, which but which I was never operative involved. And it's the market leader in ad blocking. So behind Adblock and Adblock Plus, and that was also pretty much bootstrapped, so I like the bootstrapping mindset of being very scrappy, being very tough also with prioritization. Do I really need to hire this person? Do I really need an attorney to 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 read this contract or can I just do it myself? Do I really need to hire this fancy office or can I work remote or in a, some sort of scrappy setting this This general bootstrap mindset I really admire that, and that's that's something also which we try to live at SAS group and VCs are great for certain businesses which otherwise cannot exist so one area for example where I put a little bit of work in is also on climate tech on technology to is a separate project of the of SAS group but of uh, of technologies that can de- decarbonize the industry so renewable energy and other things like that and there are areas where you need VC money because you can't just bootstrap but SAS is an area where you really like it's meant for bootstrapping. You can make early money with either a product or with services and consulting, and you can grow with the company. And so I think in SaaS, there's really not an excuse to not start and not do bootstrapping. And that's that mentality. I just have a lot of respect for the one which we're also yeah trying to live at SaaS Group.
0: Except that you don't like going from zero to one, and you also know <laughs> yeah, yeah. that it's painstakingly hard to do that with limited resources, right?
1: <laughs> it, it is. It is painstakingly hard, uh, which, which is, I guess. I mean, you you mentioned that you come from the design world, and that's probably how you funded that, right?
0: The first couple years, consulting on the side, consulting, yeah. And then we raised a bit of money. We joined tiny seed first, and then we raised an angel round, so that helped. Yeah. But at heart, we're still like our uh, rate of spending is really not the VC rate, so we're still very healthy.
1: Yeah, no, and and your bootstrap. That's tiny. Ty- you mentioned tiny. Uh, there, are sometimes people ask their competitors of tiny. I like the the tiny the seed model because it's very focused on building this mindset. Also, with their exit model, I think it's very smart. And that to me would classify pretty much as bootstrap more than as a VC funding. It's kind of the anti VC funding. But that's that's i think the the mentality Yeah, we we really like
0: thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today if you were to give a word of advice to those who are, who want to try go down your route what's one do and one don't
1: yeah on the do maybe a general thing is just i i would say always try to be helpful like there's like the community at, even if you know we're 8 billion people on the planet the actual communities is, is always small so You always meet twice or three times or more. So I would say always trust, try to be helpful, build your networks as well, but always kind of first give, give, give. And then at some point, yes, take, but be helpful. And it always comes back, be someone, you know, you can trust. Uh, Also, I mean, I, we do contracts, of course, but I, I like to always, also always do things without lawyers, because if I, if I cannot just look a founder in the eye and trust him or her and we could do this deal without a handshake, then we shouldn't do it in the first place. And sure, we need the contract for compliance and stuff, but, and that kind of all goes back to this, just be helpful, be trustworthy and and stick to your word and uh, everything else will fall into place.
0: And one don't?
1: Well, one don't is is kind of, is the flip side of this. I think trying to do short-term gains. I think I would always advise people to not try to, to trick people into doing short-term things, take advantage of them because it always kind of will fall flat on your face. And uh, yeah, it will hurt you in the long run.
0: Where can people learn more uh, from you, about you, about SaaS Group? Where can they find your line?
1: Yeah, sure. So you can contact me, Tim at SaaS Group. Very simple. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's actually the only network. After Twitter or now X has been been a mess, LinkedIn is pretty much my only social network. You can contact me there. I post a lot about climate tech, which is as is kind of my other passion besides SaaS. If you want to have SaaS contact, I would I would advise you more to follow my my colleague uh, Dirk Salmer, who has a lot more cool stuff on SaaS uh, stuff. But yeah, on LinkedIn you can contact me, or you know, just generally through our website SaaS.group. We have also. We have a form there if you're a SaaS founder and you're interested in maybe at some point just having a conversation with one of us about an exit either now or at some point it doesn't uh, just kind of flushing out some ideas. We're, we're always there, happy to help. And yeah, I'm looking forward to people contacting me, of course.
0: Thank you so much once again. Wishing you great growth on all fronts and all companies and have a wonderful rest of your week.
1: Thank you, you too. Thanks, Jane.
0: Thanks for listening. You can find a written recap for this episode at useless.com slash podcast. Please help us grow by leaving a review on iTunes.